Well, good evening. Uh, I have some notes for you, and I think they are being passed out. Uh, who was reminding me, maybe it was you, Dan, that uh, when I first started teaching, I was always madly running the notes off like this. You know what I'm saying? Remember those days? <laughs> Just before class, and the kids would all sit there and sniff my notes for the first five minutes. You know, you remember those days? But uh, So here we are again. They're not quite as... Uh, don't smell as strong, but well, let me ask you to Mark chapter seven. Let me tell you what I what I intend to do this evening, and 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 as I do, let me just say, you, I I think you rather take this uh, for granted, but um, it really is a subject of some debate and discussion today in our world. But understand that we have these four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No one of them claims to be or was designed to be an exhaustive telling of Jesus' life. That is, uh, each gospelist wrote to a specific audience. Uh, He was answering a specific issue or need. He develops a specific argument. But uh, know that... I know we're going to run short here, but I better have one. I can can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say my own self. You know what I'm saying? But, But the point is that... Uh, the point is that each one of those Gospels is a selective telling of the life of Jesus. And if we want to come to as full and a complete an understanding, and you know what, I like to think of it as full and complete and coherent, an understanding as possible of Jesus' life as a life. Because today we are told in so many quarters that... Uh, the Gospels are not sufficiently dependable in terms of inerrancy. And we're told this in our quarters, by the way, uh, that, that, that we can really trust them to actually build a chronology. So we're just supposed to study the pericopes, the events, the standalone. Well, that's, that, that's not a life. Nobody, you couldn't rearrange Tuesday and Thursday from last week and everything come out the same, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, things happen. And so what you have to do in order to come, and I believe God very much intended for us to do, in order to come to as full and coherent an understanding of Jesus' life as a life as possible, you have to harmonize the fourth gospel, the four gospels. You have to lamb, I like to say, lamb on top of each other, find the points of overlap and synchronism and so on, and put together the entire narrative. And it really comes away with a very full uh, story of Jesus' life, and God intends that for us. I'm absolutely... Convinced. And, uh, and you know, I think I've asked this before, but I'm going to return to it and that is in, the, in these sacred precincts. But it is interesting to ask, if, if, if in fact we, God does want us to know the life of Jesus as a whole, why didn't he just give us one document? Why did he give us these four documents? Why four Gospels? And I think the more, most important answer is because, this is what I tell people, your faith is grounded in history, right? Here's an interesting reality. Many of the specific truth claims, historical truth claims, in which you have invested the safekeeping of your soul, spirit, for eternity. And I would argue that given your fact that you're here on a Sunday night, uh, the truth claims in which you have invested this life, you've pretty much committed this life to the reality of those truth claims. Those historical truths, a lot of them are fairly bizarre. Like, for instance, that a man died on a Roman cross, was buried, and three days later walked out alive. 
That, that's, that's a rather radical truth claim, is it not? And it's a historical truth claim. And I like to say that here's an insight into, uh, in, into history. Here's, here's a reality about history that you should never forget. Most of it happened a long time ago, right? Can we all agree on that? Well, so here are these truth claims from a long time ago. Why would you believe those? And the answer is eyewitness testimony. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, the Bible says, shall every matter be established. And the fact that you've got Matthew being written, I would argue, within a decade of Jesus' ascension, and Matthew telling these stories and being circulated in precisely the place where they are falsifiable, you know what I'm saying? Where, where there's still hundreds and thousands of people alive, who, this is the illustration I always use, and I'll get on with this, that one of the standard critical or unbelieving or anti-supernaturalistic, because that's what's at stake, uh, explanations of the feeding of the 5,000 is that, you know, all those people were there in the plain of Bethsaida. It was late in the day, and Jesus said, we need to feed these people. And the disciples said, we don't know what to do. And a little boy came out and said, well, I got this little lunch with five loaves and two fishes. And when he did, a lot of other people in the crowd said, well, I wasn't going to say anything, but I brought a lunch too. And so by the time they all took out their lunch and shared it, there was plenty to go around. That's a prevailing explanation. Well, that only works if the book was written decades after the event so that the people who were there that day couldn't put the lie to it. I'm convinced Matthew was written by about 42, maybe 44, 42 to 44. And Jesus ascended in 33, so within about a decade. So now here comes some guy coming down to Gal- or coming up to Galilee, and he's got this book up under his arm, and it's called Matthew, and he unrolls the scroll, and he starts to tell his story. And it's the story of Jesus there on the plain of Bethsaida, and uh, feeds the 5,000 miraculously. See the point? If that's a myth, well, there are still thousands of people alive who say, hey, come on, give me a break. It was a night afternoon. We shared our lunch. But what's this about Jesus? It is so important to understand that these books were written at a time when they were circulated, and they were written and circulated at a time when there were still thousands of people who could put the lie to them if they were false. And I'll tell you one other thing. They They were circulated at a time and in a place where there was an unbelieving Jewish community that was desperate to put the lie to him, and would have picked. And we have a lot of literature from that unbelieving Jewish community. It's called the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Septuagint, and so on. Never, ever, is any fact of the Gospels challenged as to its historicity or accuracy. So, I'm saying that we've got these four Gospels. We, I believe, God very deliberately gave us these four Gospels so that we have fourfold witness to the truth of these events. They were written and circulated at a time when they could be falsified and there was no such falsification. And they were demonstrated historically unassailable and transmitted very carefully by the Spirit of God down to us. And so now we give ourselves to the business of trying to rebuild this life as a life. All right, now you have your notes and I want to, let me take you to the back to that chart first of all. Now listen, what I want to do, and this may be a lot to do, but uh, uh, did you pack a lunch? No, we're not going to do that. But, <laughs> but uh, no, the uh, I want to I want to focus on one about five month period in Jesus' ministry. It's a fascinating time. Uh, we're dropping right into the middle of Jesus' ministry, not the middle, but well into it. And uh, so that may be a lot to ask of you, but here's what I'm after. 
We're talking about Jesus as a learner. And we talked about him as a boy, learning what the Father had for him and so on. But I would say that he continued to learn, even as an uh, adult, as in the midst of his ministry. And one element of learning is getting, is figuring out ways to get a job done that needs to get done. And there is a, there is a fascinating and important segment of Jesus' ministry. Like I say, it lasts for about four or five months. It's in Mark 7 and 8 is the most succinct telling of it. But it's just fascinating to watch Jesus persevere in a, an unspeakably important task that he has before him. And he sets out to do it, and he's going to be frustrated. And he backs up and starts over, and he's frustrated once again. Now, do you have room in your conception of who Jesus was for that sort of thing? You know, again, I think sometimes we have this, this, this idea of Jesus as some sort of a you know, colossus who strides through life, and everybody goes, everybody is just kind of robotized, you know, and has to do it. That's, Jesus had to live, he lived in a real world, and he had to struggle with real difficulties. And not only opposition from people, but sometimes just things didn't work out the way he had hoped. Can you work for that? Can you live with that? I'll give you one verse. And go to Mark chapter 7. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to this verse, because this, this begins the section that we want to talk about. But in Mark chapter 7, and I'll set the scene and come back to this, but could Jesus set out to do something and be at least initially and temporarily frustrated in the effort? Could he be? Well, Mark 7 in verse 24. He went up to Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house. He did not, know, he want, did not want anyone to know, but what does it say? He could not be hidden. I think you can write that as a title over the section we're going to look for here in Mark 7 and 8. All right, well, with that background, let me take you to this chart here. It's a little hard to see, but uh, what we're looking at is the period called the training of the Twelve. I, I, I plagiarized that title, but uh, there's a famous book by A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve, which is about Jesus' discipleship methods, but that's not how I'm talking about here. Look, notice, if you will, in this chart. Let me give you the short course on the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And um, here, I'll start with, a, with a, just a question. Have you not noticed that there are places in the Gospels where Jesus does a miracle and he says, go tell everybody what I've done for you? Not very many, but there are two. On the other hand, there are many places where he does a miracle and says, please don't tell anybody. You ever thought about that? To be honest with you, there is a huge, wicked heresy constructed on that perceived disparity. But it's not a disparity. It has to do with Jesus' purposes and tactics. And I think we're advantaged in understanding the life Jesus lived, the ministry of Jesus, if you distinguish between what I put out the top there in the, in the, in the gray box, and I call it public presentation. Do you see that? And the thought is simply this, that for Jesus came to offer himself as the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. Throughout his ministry, actually, he made two claims concerning himself. Number one, and I, I, I can figure this a little differently in a different discussion, but throughout his ministry, he claimed, number one, to be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the deliverer, first promise back there in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who is going to crush the skull of the, of the deceiver serpent, right? So, number one, he claimed to be the Christ. It's very, very hard for us to appreciate how disappointing that claim was. 
because they were looking, not inappropriately, for a warrior messiah. Now, that gets very complicated, but I'm just going to tell you. Leave it at that. As a matter of fact, I'll say this. You want an index of how terribly disappointing Jesus was as a messianic claimant, as, as you know, in his... It, you want, an, you want an index of how disappointed he is. Think about John the Baptist. This is stunning. John the Baptist, who saw the Spirit descend, who heard the voice from heaven, who announced for months, this is Messiah. Now John is cast in a Roman prison, and Messiah Jesus does nothing about it. What does John do? He sends messengers. And he says, are you the one who should come, or are you not? Why am I languishing in a Roman prison if you, the Messiah, have come. Now, we can, we, when we're there, retrospect inside, we can deal a little more thoroughly with this. But I'm just saying that Jesus made two claims. And this is, I'm not making this up. This is all throughout the scriptures. Some things I make up, but this is not one of them. No. The second claim he made was he claimed to be God come in the flesh. And as I said this morning, if, if the claim to be Messiah was disappointing, the claim to be God come in the flesh was blasphemous. To a Jewish ear, this is blasphemy. Unless it just happens to be the truth. And never before in human history had it been the truth that God became a man. And, and it was unthinkable that God could become a man. You know, think about this. What is the most important, by light years, there's no close second, what is the most important piece of evidence which the Spirit of God uses to convince you that Jesus is God come in the flesh? It's not a hard question. What is it? What's the grand divine proof? What is it? The resurrection. These people didn't have the resurrection. They had a Nazarene standing in front of them. He didn't glow in the dark. He didn't have a halo. Uh, they could remember when he was a little baby running around the yard. They could remember as he grew up. Now he's, he's a stonemason. I think he was probably a pretty good stonemason. But now he stands before you and claims, by the way, I am God come in the flesh. Now I'm just telling you that these two claims, and again, I'll just walk you through. This is what, when Jesus got, and that's where we're headed, actually, if I ever get there. Uh, when Jesus got his disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi and gave them what I like to call the oral examination for their undergraduate work. One sentence, one test, one question. Who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what he claimed. When Martha, I love this scene in Martha, where in, in John 11, where Jesus comes to raise Lazarus, Martha comes out to get after him. If you'd have been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. No, he's going to live again. Well, of course you're going to live in the resurrection. I want him now. No, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he said this, do you believe this? And, and can you imagine the overwrought emotional situation here? Just the emo And what erupts out of Martha's heart without any, she didn't sit down and contemplate this. He said, do you believe this? And what erupted out of her heart was, Master, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Caiaphas had Jesus, as it were, on trial, he said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? 
And then perhaps most importantly, John wrote a gospel. And in the purpose statement, bless his heart, we love these purpose statements of his gospel. He says, many other signs did Jesus, this is John 20 in verse 30 and 31, many other signs did Jesus, which are not written in the book, but this are, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing, what? You might have life through his name. So what does that mean? This is what Jesus claimed. They were bottomlessly disappointing and difficult claims. But if you reject these claims, you're lost. That's serious. Now, for two and a half years approximately, I'm back to your your chart, believe it or not, public presentation. So for about two and a half years, he gives himself to blanketing Galilee, primarily Galilee, but later on he does the same thing in Judea. But but blanketing the land, saturating the land, village to village, synagogue to synagogue, person to person. You know, this claim of Jesus to be the Messiah could not be made by proxy. He sent the disciples out two by two, but you read it in Luke chapter 10, and it's quite clear, there it's the 70, but I believe it's the same situation. They didn't go as independent evangelistic teams. They went to alert the villages that Jesus would soon be there. Jesus was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, and he knew he had to saturate the land. So he would send, he would send his disciples out two by two with his undoubtedly itinerary. You tell that village right there that on Tuesday next I'm going to be there, be in the, you know, under the big, big tree in the middle of town, and Jesus would come, do some miracles, and be out of the next place. So my point is, it couldn't be, he couldn't be done by proxy. And he had to saturate the land with these remarkable, all right, remarkable, and I've said this to you before, but be careful about the word incredible. It actually means something. I've gotten after you before, I think, about this. But everybody uses the word incredible. It just means everything. But, I mean, it means swell. It doesn't mean swell. But, okay, I'm not going to change it. But uh, it means unworthy of belief. Can I always say? People say, oh, that was an incredible sermon. <laughs> Seems to me it would be better for a sermon to be credible. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and um and now I'm using the word that way, that Jesus made claims concerning himself which were bottomlessly incredible. And yet he did miracles and he fulfilled prophecies in such a way that if you were honest and did the Berean thing, I keep referring to the Berean thing, but Acts 17 verse says that when Paul got to Berea, a city in Greece, they were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. So the miracles were manifest, and you compare it to the Scripture, and you find out that there is absolutely no kind, that in fact he is, he, is, he, is, he is fulfilling all that the Scripture anticipated, and so you bow the knee to him. So my point is this. You've got about two and a half years, and it's on your sheet there. During these two and a half years, it's a little overstated, but, but number one, he is going where the Jews are. Number two, he is openly, if carefully, proclaiming, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Number three, he is doing miracles. Everywhere he goes, miracles are God's way to prove true a man's claim to be a divine messenger. So if he is a divine messenger, his message is true. And he does so many miracles, the, 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 all the books of the world couldn't contain the number of thereof. Honest to goodness. You know, it's curious. Through this period of his ministry... If you got to Jesus, he healed you. I always say, he didn't put some sort of a faithometer on your head, you know, and you know, see if you had nothing. That's got nothing to do with it. If you got to him, now he never healed crowds. Never said, everybody go home healed. You had to get to him. 
That's why people would beg him to touch them. Please touch them. Why? Because he had to actually, you had to get to him. I always think, how, what do you think this meant for crowd control? You know what I'm saying? But I say, let's just let me go. These miracles were God's way of proving true that, that, that Jesus claimed to be a divine messenger and thus proving true his claims to be the Christ, to be the Son of the living God. Now, he gave himself to that for about two years. Now, look back at the chart. And at the bottom of the great Galilean ministry, under number three, can you find that? I'm really flying low here, but I say there that there are two grand moments of rejection. I don't want to get into them. They are the, the uh, uh, unpardonable sin episode, really the Beelzebub. Uh, the, what happens there is Jesus does a miracle, and it's a miracle specifically foretold of Messiah by Isaiah, He'll open the eyes of the blind. He'll loose the tongue of the dumb. He, he, he healed a man who was blind and, and mute so that he both spake and saw. And this is the big issue. The people turned to the Pharisees and they said, help us here. This isn't the son of David, right? They begged for an excuse. And when Jesus saw this, I believe, and again, be patient with me here, but I believe that when Jesus heard the common man in Matthew chapter 12, in the face of a miracle, turn to the Pharisees. You know, I always say it's kind of the exact polar, wicked opposite of the man who prayed, I believe, help my unbelief. Remember that? These people are saying, we don't believe. Help our unbelief. We've decided to reject him. But we don't know what to do with this miracle. Help. And some creative... Uh, Wicked uh, Pharisee, if you don't mind, comes up, well, uh, well he does it by bells. Okay, good enough for us. And when Jesus sees that, now the Pharisees have been mad at him for a long time, but when he hears the common man give their allegiance to his enemies and reject his claims, he begins to turn away. And, and then the other is the feeding of the 5,000. I always say when we think of the feeding of the 5,000, we think of it as this, this delightful boy, uh, story about the boy and his lunch and... and, and you know, just reduces itself, I say, so happily to a flannel graph. But in point of fact, it's one of the most melancholy stories in the Gospels because what happens is the people who enjoyed the bread that afternoon the next morning sought Jesus out in Capernaum, and Jesus said, and there is such bottomless theological significance and insight in this, Jesus said to them, you seek me not because you saw the signs. Now what does he mean by that? The signs demonstrate the truth concerning who he is. Not because you're willing to acknowledge why you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the bread. That's all you're interested in. And he preaches that, this is John 6, that if will, you're not willing to trust me, not only for physical life, but spiritual life, your fathers ate bread in the, in, in the wilderness. They had no other hope of physical life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Unless you trust me to that level with regard to your spiritual life, you're going to die in your sins. And then you have John 6, 6, 6. I was thinking it's such an interesting versification because it says, after that, his disciples went back and followed him no more. All these people were so excited about him. Oh, wait a minute. If you're saying that our, 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 we can't keep the law in order to get into the kingdom, if you're saying we have to trust you, now we're not interested. And that's where that, that, that public presentation really breaks down. All right, now. Does that make sense to you? Hey, listen. We have convened a class, all right? Honest to goodness. If you're wondering about something, raise your hand, because this is entirely informal. 
I mean, mildly related to the lesson. But, but, uh, <laughs> but honest to goodness, if I'm confused. So, so here's where I'm taking you. It's very important to the background. Jesus, for the better part of two and a half years, had given himself carefully, it's in the record, can't be mistaken, to saturating the land with claims concerning himself, going from village to village, synagogue to synagogue, doing miracles to demonstrate that he is, in fact, what he claims to be, has the authority to say it. And then you have these two moments in the record, I mean, everything changes, uh, of, of where Jesus discerns the rejection of that generation. They are committed to disbelief. Now listen, I believe Jesus discerned that. He learned it. He knew it was coming because he could read the Scriptures. So he, he, he knew this, that generation was going to reject him. But by the same token, I believe his heart was broken. You know, sometimes when we, when we witlessly uh, adopt this sort of Clark Kent approach to Jesus or this, this soul, I mean, you know, he's just kind of walking through a, 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 pre, a, a pre-scripted drama. We take the, the emotion out of it. Here's a verse. Everybody in the room knows the verse by heart. But, but think about the, the angst and the heartache in this verse. Finish it for me. He came on to his own. There's a heartbreak in that. Do you think Jesus was dismayed over the fact that this people whom he loved so desperately had determined to reject him despite all evidence? And if there was ever a moment when his own received him not, it's there in Matthew 12 and John 6. They turned their back on him. All right, now look at the chart. Because below public presentation is a period of Jesus' ministry that I've called private preparation. And, he, and, and, and it, it happens right there in Mark chapter 7. You're just reading along in the book of Mark, and all of it says in verse 24, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You're going to Tyre and Sidon? That's Phoenicia. That's totally non-Jewish. What's he doing in Tyre and Sidon? This is Gentile territory. And then it goes on to say, he went into a house, woman came, asked for a miracle, and he was reluctant to do it. He tried not to do it. And you're saying, what? Well, that's really, suddenly, his tactics, his, his, his travels change. And, and as I say on your chart there, all of a sudden he's going to non-Jewish territory. All of a sudden he's very reluctant to do miracles. All of a sudden he is begging people, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Why? Because, and here's where I'm taking you, Jesus had something to tell his disciples. He knew it was absolutely imperative that he teach them what was to come, and he knew that when he did, it was going to totally devastate them. And what that is, is that he's going to die. I always say, you're going to come to grips with the life of Jesus as portrayed clearly in the Gospels, just start by marking this down. It's almost three years. See, because we think of Jesus as coming to die. Amen and amen. But it is almost three years into that three-and-a-half-year ministry, if the ministry is from the baptism to the ascent, about three-and-a-half years. And you're almost three years into that before Jesus, for the very first time, tells his disciples he's going to die. And when he does, what do they say? Do they say, well, yeah, we got Isaiah 53. We wondered when you'd start talking about this. No, they did have Isaiah 53. They were not only dumbfounded, they were scandalized. And they never got over it. But here's where I'm taking you with Jesus as a learner.
Here we are about two and a half years into the three and a half year ministry. We're at the end of the Galilean ministry on your chart. We're at the end of the period that I'm calling public presentation. Jesus has discerned the commitment of his generation to reject him. He knows he has to begin to prepare his disciples for what's certain to come. He has never mentioned it to him before. He knows how difficult, and it's stunningly difficult, really staggeringly. And so Jesus becomes, I think this is where we see Jesus, perhaps most remarkably, as a patient, enduring, persevering, resourceful teacher. But even as a teacher, he's a learner. Because he sets out to get this done. Now, I've, I've laid it out. So what we're, and, and let me just tell you this. All right, this is a little technical thing here. Forgive me. But the chronology of Jesus' ministry is tough at the beginning. Because we don't have many hard chronological markers. As you go forward, it gets very fixed. We can trace it month by month. Because John keeps giving us these feasts. Now, notice on your sheet there that one of those two at the bottom of the Great Galilean ministry, the, the final uh, moment of rejection I put there is the feeding of the 5,000. Do you see that? Right at the end of that period called public presentation. John, in introducing the feeding of the 5,000, says this in John 6 and verse 4, the feast of Passover was at hand. Well, the next Passover is when Jesus will die. So now in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000, the collapse of what we're calling the public presentation or the Great Galilean, we are, we're one year from Jesus' death. And what we're going to look at, I'm going to be very quick about it, is the first half of that last year. Does that make sense to you? This is the first half. Or I'll say it this way. Jesus dies on April 3rd, 33 A.D. Uh, that's Passover, spring of 33 in John chapter 7, I'm working backwards now, in, for some reason I can't figure out, but in John chapter 7, you have Jesus going to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in the fall. In John chapter 6, you have Jesus feeding the 5,000 at the Feast of Passover a year before the, the one at which he dies, right? So what we're doing, what we're looking at here is from Passover to tabernacles, or from spring to fall of 32 A.D. He's going to die in the spring of 33. Does that make sense to you? Just as a chronological... you got to deal with chronology if you're going to deal with... I, don't know, I heard somebody say one time that time is God's way to make sure everything doesn't happen at once, you know, and it doesn't all happen at once, you know, and so uh, chronology is the backbone. And so here we are a year out from Jesus' ministry. He has come to, uh, he has discerned that the hardness of the, the, uh, that generation is full. He needs to prepare his disciples for the cross. He's never mentioned it to them. He's hinted at it once in John 3, tear down, or 2, tear down this temple in three days, I'll build it. And John says in the context, we didn't know what he was talking about until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, we knew what that meant, but not until. So, let me, t let me walk you through it on the other side of the page. So that's where we are. We're in that block, block called the Training of the Twelve. Uh, specifically what I'm after is this uh, determination on the part of Jesus to find a way to communicate, to teach his disciples concerning his coming death. 
and he spends several months at it and finally accomplishes it. So let me just, I'll go, th- I'll go quickly through it. I've just summarized it real quickly on the back of the sheet. Well, the front of the sheet, with the other side of the sheet. I give you a little map there, which I can't see my own self, but uh, that's all I had. But uh, I had a book years ago by a guy by the name of Lewis Brown. He has these cute little maps. I kind of enjoy these maps. But can you see where we are in that map? Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee, that little pear-shaped thing. And on the uh, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee on the shore is Capernaum. And you'll see he sets out from Capernaum and makes his way north to Syrophoenicia. Now, I guarantee you his disciples were scratching their heads, wondering, what are we doing? Here is the Messiah, and he's been going from place to place, making a... And by the way, by the way, one of the most important dynamics of Jesus' ministry was that he, would, he could always draw a crowd, for heaven's sakes. He was the best show in town. He was healing anybody who got to him. And those crowds were important on two counts, hugely important. Number one, they protected Jesus from his enemies. How many times does it say they wanted to take him, but they could not because they feared the multitude. They feared that there would be a riot and the Romans would come, and if they just went and seized Jesus, that these people would riot and the Romans would step in and the people who caused the riot, their head would roll, and it's all true. So number one, the, the crowds were deliberate and important because they protected Jesus from his enemies, right up until the end, until Tuesday night, actually, the Passion Week. But the second reason those crowds were so important, those massive crowds around him, is because uh, they're important to the record. You have to factor this in, is what I want to say. It's because they totally confused the disciples. They, they, they think they're on a roll, and it's only going to get better here. Because here, everywhere he goes in the, in, it was just a few weeks ago that he found himself, he went away to be alone. And so many people pursued him that he had to feed the people, and, 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 they, and, and there were over 5,000, I mean, there were 5,000 men plus the women. That was just a few days ago, a few weeks ago. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, gentlemen, we're going to follow me. Off he goes. Jews don't, you know, they don't feel comfortable traveling in this kind of land. But here he goes, up to Syrophoenicia. All right, quickly, you know this story. Uh, I'll be very quick about it, but this is what happens. It says specifically there in verse 24, he went up to Syrophoenicia, he went into a house, he wanted no man to know. Why did he not? He wanted to have time with his disciples. I believe clearly that what's at stake here is Jesus spent a little time thinking about this, praying over it. And he thought, all right, I'll go into Gentile territory. The masses won't follow me there. So he makes his way up to Syrophoenicia. But here comes this woman. And she, she begs. Jesus says, no, no. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, the point was not that she was a Gentile. The point was that he didn't want to do a miracle. Why didn't he want to do a miracle? He'd always done a miracle, but he wanted to get alone. And he knew he'd had big crowds. So you can imagine as he left Jewish territory, he made his way to Gentile territory. He was not so much well-known. He wasn't recognizable. The Jews are uncomfortable with Gentile territory. That's why they stay behind. He and the twelve go up to this, uh, this Syrophoenician town, and uh, they find a house, and they go in. But here comes this woman she had heard. And she begs him to heal her daughter. And, and he's reluctant. But she wins him over. She's, he says, it, it's, it's, I, 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 I'm the Messiah of the Jewish people. I've come to the Jews. And again, I want to emphasize, it's not that he doesn't love the Gentiles, not that he doesn't love this woman. But he is so 
desperate to get along with his disciples. What the text says. And so he's trying to be strategic. And, and, and she says, by the way, this woman is one of my greatest heroines. I want to meet this woman. I love this woman. I'm so impressed with this woman. Honest to goodness. Folks, oh, better not go down this road, had I. But think about this. In Jesus' word picture, because this is what happens. He says it's not appropriate to take that which is intended for the children and give it to the dogs. And I hear people say, well, you know, dogs were domesticated and so on. Look, that's insulting. There's no getting around that. And you could not have blamed this woman, I think, if she just turned on her heel and said, well, that's no way. Especially she's a Gentile. She, here's a Jewish man. Tell, I can't do it. It's, I, I'm not going to take that, which is fit for the children and give it to the dogs. And she says, well, don't we dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table? You know what, folks? This is a total aside, but I can't leave it alone. What was it about Jesus' word picture there that qualified her in his telling of the story as a dog? What was the one thing about her that made her, in the word picture, a dog? She was a Gentile. Are you a Gentile? I'm a Gentile. Folks, we're the dogs. We really are. We're getting the crumbs that fall. Now, they are really tasty crumbs. They are new covenant blessings. But this is all about God fulfilling his covenant to a people called Israel. And we're just part of that. We really are. Romans 11, verse 11. We're here to live out these new covenant blessings in such a way that the Jews will be attracted to the gospel, especially at the time when, 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 before the white horse rider descends, when the, all the Jews on the earth, as it were, are faced with the... But I'm going to leave that alone. My point is... Jesus heals the daughter, the, the, the woman's daughter. He's just moved by this, by this, this, this. I think this submissiveness and so on. But now, let me just confess: in Mark's telling and in Matthew's telling, we're not told much more except that he leaves there and goes to Decapolis. Now I'll come back to that. Then let me make two two notes here. Number one: understand that again and again. In the Bible, the stories that are recorded are meant to be representative. So this is just the tenor of what's going on. Does that make sense to you? And wherever Jesus goes, because the next, and I, I assume that she got all excited, told her friends, they brought all their sick people, pretty soon there were a big crowd. Because the next thing we know, he's in the Decapolis. Now, if you, if you look on that map, the Decapolis is on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's going to walk 60, 80 miles around the Sea of Galilee, it's going to take him maybe four or five days, I think maybe longer than that, because I'm going to say again, I think that what you have on the pages of Scripture is designed to be representative. This is what was going on, everywhere he'd go. So now he comes to the capitalist. Now, this is what's interesting about this, and I want you to catch this, because I'm talking to you about Jesus as a learner. Well, I better read it to you. In, in, in the Decapolis, and the Decapolis is a region, but you know what the Romans did? What's Decapolis? Do you hear that? What's Deca? Ten. what's Polis? They drew a circle around ten Gentile cities and made it a Roman province and so on. But it was above all things. I said above all things. It was very non-Jewish. It was a very Jewish territory and he was ten cities. And so they kind of set them off by themselves. And uh, now he goes to the Decapolis. And uh, when he gets there, let me pick it up in Matthew chapter 8 and verse uh, 31. It's uh, Mark, Mark. I'm in Mark. What did I say? Mark eight thirty-one. He returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through the Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, on the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. 
They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. Now, again, he's in Gentile territory. But the word gets out. He's trying to get alone, but the word gets out. And so it says, taking him aside from the crowd privately. Now, the point is that he's taking steps that he didn't take back there in Syrophoenicia. He's learned some things. So, all right, so he takes him off by himself. And watch this. Looking, uh, it says, uh, take him aside from the crowd privately. He put his finger into his ears. Probably took his family with him. Put his finger, that is Jesus, put his finger into his ears. And after spitting or moistening his lips, he touched him. And I like this. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, uh, Ephetah, this this is Aramaic, this is his mother tongue, which I think bespeaks the fact that there is some emotion here. Jesus is a little frustrated. He looks to heaven. He sighs. He says, be opened. So he opens the man's hand. Notice what it says. His ears were open. His tongue was released. He spoke plainly. And Jesus, and it's a strong word, charged them. Now the them there would suggest that the man they brought along his family. Charged them to tell no one. But the, And you can imagine the excitement. Here this man's been deaf all his life. He can hear. Have you ever watched those videos of people get the cochlear implants? Oh, you just weep for 10 minutes. I mean, you know, somebody's, the family's sitting behind him, you know, and calls their name, and they can hear. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's what's going on here. There's this deaf man. All of a sudden, he's, he's hearing. And imagine the excitement. So it says, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astonished beyond measure, saying he's done all things well. So the word goes out, and I'm not going to go through it, but in chapter 8, he feeds 4,000. Now, over there in Galilee, he had fed six, uh, 5,000. It's interesting that in, in Galilee, he picked up seven, uh, 12 baskets. You remember that? And here he feeds 4,000. And uh, in verse 8, it says they picked up seven baskets. One of the curious realities here is that there are two very different words for baskets. And they're actually measures. It's like what you would take and get filled with grain. It was, it was a measure of wheat that you paid by the measure. And the the, Greek, the Gentiles had a different measure than the Jews did. So in chapter 6, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, it's, it's 12 baskets in a Jewish measure. Here it's a Gentile measure. Why? Because this is Gentile territory. Now, honest to goodness. All right, I'll just keep going. I, listen, I, what's going on here? I think Jesus is, is, is desperate to get along with his disciples. He had taken a pretty radical step in going to Gentile territory. He'd been frustrated in that. And so he'd taken an even more radical step by going into even more Gentile territory in the Decapolis. It was deeply Gentile. And furthermore, he had taken extra steps, taking the man outside of town, and, and, and laid, I think he laid his hands on to kind of keep control. And then he had charged him, don't tell anyone. But they told everyone. And pretty soon he has to feed 4,000. All right, so next on your sheet is what I call there a brief foray across the sea and back into Galilee. And you can see that on the bottom half of the Sea of Galilee there. You can see where he left Decapolis and he sailed across on my little sissy map there. He uh, sailed across to uh, Dalmanutha, Magdala. And uh, one of the interesting parts of the narrative in uh, one gospel, it's called Magdala, as in Mary Magdalene, uh, Migdal. Oh, boy, is that... They, they have only been digging big doll for about the last seven years. It's spectacular. Oh, it's just spectacular. Did we get there? 
I just and every time you go there, they do. They've, they've uncovered more, and it's more exciting. But anyway, uh, on the other hand, we don't know where Dalmanutha is because it's used in parallel to Magdala. We figured it must be part of Magdala. One gospel says Magdala, the other says Dalmanutha, and uh, the the general conjecture is that it was kind of a little known port. Maybe Magdala was a huge fishing center because they salted fish there. So they had a number of quays, you know, the stone docks, and everybody would come in and dock and sell their fish to the guys who were going to pay. But Dalmanutha, we don't know. But, and I wonder if that's not the point. I think what's at stake is this, honestly. Jesus and his disciples have been away for several weeks now. He has been trying to get alone, but he's been totally frustrated in the effort. He knows he can't give up on it. He has to get his disciples alone. But he, and I think at least part of what play, I, I think another thing that plays into this is that Jesus is still responsible for his family. And so he, he, he wants to get home. And it's probably late at night and he gets on a ship. He's got all these fishermen disciples and they could e- easily find a ship they could borrow. And he gets in the ship and they cross thinking maybe with all these weeks that I've gone by, I've been gone the hatred of the Pharisees has died down a little bit. Maybe I can at least get back into, and my, fam, my, my disciples as well, and visit their family and so on. As soon as he gets off the ship, a Pharisee hops out behind, from behind a tree. Yeah, I made that part up, but you know, <laughs> there he is. Give us a sign. Jesus gets back in the boat. I think his heart is heavy. What it indicates is that his enemy is so angry with him, they're tracking his steps when he's in far-off Gentile territory. Just gets off the boat. Here's a Pharisee. And Jesus gets back on the boat. Now hear this. And there's some conversation, but he says to his disciples, beware the leaven. What does leaven do? Yeah, it spreads. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And his disciples, who are pretty clueless, all they got going, and far as they can see, is these huge crowds everywhere they go. So they say, and it says that they had forgotten to bring bread, And so they said, well, he's upset because we didn't bring a sandwich. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute. I fed 5,000, picked up 12 baskets. I fed 4,000, picked up seven baskets. You think I'm worried because you didn't bring any bread? And then it says, he told them plainly, beware the teaching, the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now get what's at stake here. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's got huge crowds. He goes into Gentile territories. He's got huge crowds. Okay, you got these fuss-budget Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're all bent out of shape. Big deal. They're going to get swallowed up. And Jesus, oh, no, 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 you beware. That's going to spread. And, of course, it does. And that's what gets Jesus on a cross. So now he gets back in a boat, and they go up. And here's where I want you to see. And I think there is such genius in this. Now, what the Bible says is that Jesus... Well, he's going to go north. And on your little map, way up, you'll see in the, in the, in the uh, uh, top right there, Mount Hermon. Can, is it down there? Does it say Mount Hermon? Mount Hermon is the southern peak of a range called the Anti-Lebanon Mountains. It's a real mountain range. When you read about mountains in Israel, they're hills. They're not even real high hills, to be honest with you. But there is one mountain, snow-capped. As a matter of fact, it's called by the locals the Old Man Mountain. Because it's got snow, it's got white air, and it's the only place they see it. And uh, Mount Hermon stretches to the north, but the southern tip of Mount... I'm sorry, the Anna Lebanon mountain range stretches a couple hundred miles to the north. But the southern tip is in Israel, it's about 7,200 feet high. 
Uh, there's a there's a snow. I mean, there's a snow skiing area up there. And um, at the foot of Mount, and there are. All right, what do you care about this? But you should care. Uh, you know, the whole Jordan River system flows down from from Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee and out of the Sea of Galilee and down through the Jordan River and into the Dead Sea. It's all fed by four springs at the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, one of them is called uh, Banyas. Uh, the big one is Dan, as in from Dan to Beersheba. Remember where the Danites settled? Uh, come up here and you'll find an area which once no good thing. This is lush territory in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Uh, and, oh, just rushing torrents of beautiful streams and waters and ample uh, uh, area for farm and pasture and so on. It's a beautiful area. And, uh, but at any rate, up there is a place called Banyas, B-A-N-I-A-S. And this area... When Herod the Great, remember that guy, wanted to murder the baby Jesus? When he died in 1 B.C., by the way, I don't care what the books say. Uh, when he died in 1 B.C., honestly, everybody says he died in 4 B.C., and it's totally, total throws everything off, and virtually everybody's coming over to 1 B.C. But not because I, I didn't get there first. That's not the point at all. But, but 1 B.C. is where it at. But the, uh, when Herod died, he left his kingdom to three sons. Archelaus down in the south, Herod Antipas in Galilee and Perea, but... Philip, his son Philip, got this area around the Sea of Galilee to the north. And he had decided to take this area called Banyas. Now, Banyas is a huge spring. Huge. I mean, just gushing. We, we go to the waterfall, produce this beautiful waterfall and so on. You can't see the spring. It's kind of dropped. It used to be you could go and kind of see the water gurgling out of the earth, but it's dropped a little bit. You can go down a little further and see the waterfall, and it's huge and beautiful. So the point is that, and it feeds that Jordan River system along with three other, three other uh, springs. But the point is that it's beautiful. And lush, and there was this big cavern. And in antiquity, in the first century, the water actually came spilling out of this huge open, about as big as this you know, wall over there. And out of it comes this gushing water, and of course. And, uh, and, and, and Philip, Herod's son, had decided to make this his capital. And he, he named it Caesarea Philippi. In other words, Caesarea after the Caesar, who by this time is Tiberius, and Caesarea Philippi to distinguish an earlier Caesarea down on the coast, which his father had built and named in honor of Augustus. So at any rate, here you have this area. Now, let's go back to our story. Jesus has worked hard to get alone with his disciples. He's been frustrated. Uh, he's tried... Syrophoenician tried deeper Gentile territory, Decapolis. Didn't work. So now I think he says to himself, because he's wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, I know where I can go. It's within walking distance. It's about 40 miles. Nobody will follow me. I know I'll be able to. And that place is at the foot of Mount Hermon, the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now I'll come back to that. But along the way... He, he, he's on this boat. Remember, he had left Dalmanutha on the boat. Now he's going to go up to Caesarea Philippi to the north, and so the boat docks at a place called Bethsaida. At Bethsaida, and again, you get this feel that no matter where he goes, people are clamoring. Because he gets off the boat, and he's going to take the, the 35-mile or so, maybe a little less than that, 25-mile walk up to Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi. But the boat docks at Bethsaida, and the people of Bethsaida come out, 
And they bring Jesus a man who is blind. And this is that strange story where, well, let's, let's look at it real quickly. It's Mark chapter 8 again. Uh, verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. Now, this is just where the boat stops. He's, he's, he, it just, this is the trailhead. He wants to get up to Caesarea Philippi, or the region. And the people, as the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now watch this. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. I mean, evidently, he, and I'm sure his disciples are telling the people, you stay back. You want him to heal him? You stay back there. So he leads him out of the village. And uh, then, when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? Now you know this story. And the man there in verse 24 said, he looked up and he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, he must have been excited. I don't know if he'd been blind from birth. Let's just make the story more exciting. Let's say he had. He'd never seen anything. Now he can see, but he can't. And he says, I, well, I can see, uh, but I can't tell the difference between a tree and a man. If it's walking around, I figure it's, it's a man, but I can't tell the difference. And then, of course, Jesus finishes the job. He says, then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. All right, now what's going on here? All right, everybody who deals with this has his explanation. I like mine better than theirs. What can I tell you? I think, but I'm going back to the whole narrative. Understand it. And this is where I want you to see Jesus is so resourceful. He's so persistent. He's so determined. He had tried Syrophoenicia, went up in small. He had tried Decapolis. Now he's going to, he said, I'm going to go up here. But along the way, they bring him. I'm going to go up to Caesarea. I'm along bring they bring this guy. So they take him out of sight of town. All right, now, I'm going <laughs> to, my imagination is going to amend the text, okay? But I, I, I see Jesus. You know, he does it the first time. And the man says, well, I see. That's exciting, but I can't tell between trees and men. Well, is that good enough for you? You want me to finish the job? You're going to behave yourself? I, I really think there's some of that in there. Uh, if nothing else, he's, he's, he's getting you know get some of the excitement to dissipate, get him calmed down. Because he finishes the job, and then he says to the man, don't go in the village, don't tell anybody. And evidently, the man obeys. Because Jesus gets away in the narrative. I mean, the next thing is he makes his way up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, let me, let me talk to you about Caesarea Philippi. As I said, its original name was Banyas. Actually, that's not quite true. Its original name was Panyas, with a P. And uh, the Aramaic doesn't have an initial P, so when they pronounce it, it comes out Banyas. But it's called Panyas because it's named after the Greek god Pan, the Greco-Roman god Pan. Do you know Pan? He's Mr. Tumnus. Remember Mr. Tumnus? From Narnia, the goat and the man, that's Pan. It's where we get, it's a very important Greco-Roman god. It's a military god. And the soldiers would do extensive obeisance to Pan. Now it's curious that Pan is where we get the word panic. It means fear. And the hope was that if they would appease him before going into battle, he wouldn't trouble them during battle. And what we know is that, all right, so number one, it's a huge springhead. Number two, the entire region has been given over to a Greek Roman god by the name of Pan. 
And furthermore, Caesar, uh, 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 Herod uh, Philip, this fellow to whom it had been vouchsafed, and, and he was going to make it a, a center of his, he was going to make it the capital of his district. But because of the lush surrounding and so on, he determined to make it a place where soldiers could come and relax when they had a little time off, when they had a little leave. So you can imagine that he populated it with everything a soldier might be interested in. And furthermore, you had these, when Titus finished the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, remember Titus Vespasian, the Roman who destroyed this? He spent seven months at Caesarea Philippi with his troops. They brought about 6,000 Jewish slaves and slaughtered them in the theater there. Uh, This was a place of Roman soldier wickedness, licentiousness, ribaldry. Plus you had all of these Roman soldiers. Now think about this. Roaming about, on leave, no specific duty or no specific, no particular oversight, with swords on their sides, it was dangerous. You didn't go here. Does that make sense to you? So Caesarea Philippi, number one, it was a place given over to a Greco-Roman god. And we know this because there are coins from the first century. Because you go there. Have you been to Caesarea Philippi? Some of you have been to Caesarea Philippi. And there are these niches in the wall. And it's a beautiful, I mean, it's just a lush area. Lush. But there are all these niches that were carved in the wall. And on, there's nothing in them. They're empty today. But on the Roman coins from that era, the god Pan is in those niches. And it's called Panius or Banius. So it's given over to a Greco-Roman god, and it's a place of ribaldry and wickedness and bacchanalian uh, 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 feasting and so on, and so and 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 and, and overpopulated with Roman soldiers who are who are drunk half the time probably and looking for trouble. You know what I'm saying? It's de- and there's one other element to this, I think, and that is that when Herod the Great ruled. In order to be part of the, in order to be have the station he had as a Roman officer there in Judea, he had to buy into what's called the imperial cult. You had to worship the emperor. And you had specifically, you had to build temples to the emperor. And he built three of them. This is Herod the Great, Philip's father. But he built three temples to to, 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 to Augustus. And one was in Caesarea Maritima, there by the coast. One was in Samaria, or uh, 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 Samaria. What did Samaria become? All of a sudden, the word, the, the modern word, the Roman Neapolis. But the other was in Caesarea Philippi. All right. So here's my point, and, and, and let me pull it all together. Let's let's follow the story now. Jesus had been going to the Jews, doing miracles. All of a sudden, because of these these, these this period of these, these evidences of rejection, Jesus changes his tactics dramatically. Off to Syrophoenicia. Why did he go there? He, w- he went into a house. He would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. He was trying to get solitude. But it didn't work. All the way over to Decapolis. More Gentile. Doesn't work. Weary, he tries to, to, to sneak back, as it were, into... Sneak? Make his way back into Galilee. Gentile, uh, Pharisee accosts him, gets back in a boat. says, I know where I can go. I think he, he measured it this way. I can walk those 25 miles across the Hula Valley. I can climb those low foothills of Caesarea Philippi. He is not going to Caesarea Philippi. That would be foolish, counterproductive, and suicidal. The Bible doesn't say he went. It's most explicit in Matthew 16. 
It's the last thing I'll show you. And then we gotta, I gotta be quick here. But Matthew 16 and verse 21 is the, the most explicit expression of his intent. Here it says, Matthew 16, from that time, no, no, that's not what I want. Matthew 16 and verse 13. That's where the story begins. Now notice it clearly. When Jesus came into the district, the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a national park today, an Israeli national park. Everybody goes to national, Caesarea Philippi, and, and, and God bless them, they should. But I listened to one guide or teacher after another, and I don't mean, uh, it's too late now, there's hubris in this, there's no getting around it. But, but what I hear him say is, this is where Jesus came to tell his disciples that he was going to die. No, no, it would have been suicidal to go to there. He would not go near that place. But what, well, maybe near. The point is, it's on a mountainside. And there are all sorts of, 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 it's a forested, heavily forested mountainside. And so I think it says specifically he went to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And I think as he's making his way up we call, what we call today the Hula Valley, and he's making his way up toward the Mount of, uh, you know, he's got these big crowds, but as he starts to climb into the foothills and he's headed right up there, they say, I'm not going up there. And they start to fall off. And now Jesus is just alone with the twelve. And he, he doesn't go to Caesarea Philippi. He goes to some place in the region. He finds himself his own fastness, if you don't mind, in the forests. And they, they've all got their temps, tents and they make a little camp. And that's where Jesus is going to tell his disciples about his death. that makes sense to you? So I'm saying that it's interesting to me. Now I want to take just a minute. and Oh boy, we're done. Here's the thing. When he gets his disciples alone, he tells them. First of all, he gives them this oral examination. I call it the oral examination for their undergrad work because he's got grad work for them. This is the next step. But you can't get to the grad work until you finish the undergrad. So he gives them this one sentence, this one, one question test. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ. And Jesus exults. As I say, these are difficult claims. And he says, blessed are you, Simon. You've got it. My father has taught you this. Now let me tell you something else. I know there's the discussion about you know, the keys in the church and it's all big and important. But I want to go to Matthew 16 and 21 that says this, from that time forth, and I want you to picture Jesus. And here's my point with regard to what we're doing. He had worked to make this happen. He had spent months trying to get along with his disciples. He had been initially frustrated. He'd had to abort the Syrophoenicia and the Decapolis plan. But he stayed with it. And he was wise as a serpent. And he conceived a plan by which he could get alone with his disciples. And so he makes its way up there, and then you have this. From that time forth, Jesus began. Now this is almost three years into the three-and-a-half-year ministry. From that time forth began. And I always say that suggests... Two things. Number one, he hadn't done it before. And number two, once he started doing it, he did it again and again, right? From that time forth began Jesus to show on to his disciples how he must be taken to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day rise again. And the next verse says that Peter took him. In most translations, I've got the ESV here, uh, but most translations, verse 22, they say Peter took him aside. Well, that's a very legitimate reading of the Greek, but I don't think it fits the context. I think he took them like this. I think he seized them. Don't you be talking about that. I got no room in my theology for a dying Messiah. Of course, Jesus says, get thee behind me. You don't savor the things of God, but the things of God. It's a stunning, stunning scene. But the point is, 
A point to be made is this, and, and this deserves so much more attention and time, but let me just say it very quickly. Jesus made this stunning statement. In other words, he began to teach him, I'm going to die. Now, two points to be made. Number one, answer this carefully. In the Old Testament, when Messiah comes and establishes a kingdom, how long does that kingdom last? Forever. We're dying in that, for heaven's sakes. And we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be in that kingdom. We're going to live forever. What's that all about dying? And then secondly, if I'm one of the disciples, this is as counterintuitive as it could possibly be. Everywhere we go, you've got these huge crowds. seems to me like the whole, that's why Jesus said, beware the, 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 the teaching of the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But as far as it's... So this is, this is staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And let me tell you something. It was so staggering that the disciples began to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah. And the Bible, in Luke, it says eight days. In Matthew, it says six days. And that's not really a contradiction. It's how you count the days. But about a week later, Jesus took three of them, Peter, James, and John. And he took them into a high mountain apart from the others. In other words, he probably said to the, to the nine, I'm going to take Peter. This is not the only time that he, went to, he spent some time alone with Peter and James and John. And he said, I'm going to take these men and we'll be gone a couple of days. Uh, the indication is that they probably went back down off the hill and to a village somewhere to wait for him. But now Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. By the way, the disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying. All of a sudden, he is invested with the effulgence of physical brilliance and glory that will be his when he reigns. We'll never see this humble uh, if you don't mind, self-effacing Solomon's head of Jesus. This is the, the, when, but the point is, Peter wakes up. He sees this. Peter says, Lord. And of course, Moses and Elijah are there. How did, how did they recognize Moses and Elijah? Name tags. It's the only, I'm telling you, it's the only, that's it biblical. But the point is that, uh, I'm being silly there, but Peter wakes up and he says, there's Jesus in his, in his kingdom glory. And Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let me build three booths. Remember that? The booths are Sukkot. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to the kingdom. In the Jewish mind, the the tabernacles is all about the kingdom. And so what Peter is saying is, Lord, look at this. We're here. I was right. I don't know what this dying talk is, but here we are. This is great. I'll just build three booths and we'll get it on. And a voice comes from heaven and says in the vernacular, Peter, this is my beloved son. When he speaks, shut up and listen, for heaven's sakes. That's what he's saying. Peter thought he'd won the argument momentarily. And a voice from heaven says, he's telling you he's going to die? He's going to die. And then, of course, Moses and Elijah are gone and, 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 and so on. Listen, what was the transfiguration about? And remember, it came a week after Jesus initially told his disciples he was going to die. What do you think that week was like? Do you think they were... Don't you suppose there were long discussions and Jesus spending time in the Scripture and they just couldn't and wouldn't get it? And can't you imagine maybe late at night Jesus going off to pray and the disciples are sitting around a fire? And what is this talk all about? This is the most 
what could he be talking about? And somebody says, well, he's been under a lot of pressure. I know that. So maybe he's just a little confused. But they don't get it. And the transfiguration, know this, was a teaching moment because the transfiguration was about one purpose. And that is to reinforce the staggering faith of those three disciples. It's interesting to ask, and I'd love to talk about it sometime, why he only took those three, but I think it's not hard to understand why he took those three, why he left the other nine. But he knew that these are the most influential, and if I can get them back on board, they'll carry the team the rest of the way. But it is so interesting that what Jesus had to say was so disconcerting, so alarming, and he knew it would be. He's a master teacher, and so he spends all that time trying to get alone. And when he gets alone, he's, 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 he, 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 as carefully as he can, introduces, I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'll rise again. You know, every time he says, I'm going to die, because there are about four of them. Four places later on where he gets his disciples alone, and he says, same thing, going to Jerusalem, suffer many things, suffer other cheap, going to be killed. On the third day, I'll rise again. Every single time. The next, the next voice, out of it, same breath. I'm going to rise again. The disciples didn't get it. And I always say, if you want an index of how thoroughly they didn't get it, wouldn't you have thought that when, he, when, when it happened, when he was crucified, laid at a tomb, that somebody early on Sunday morning would have thought, you know, he said again and again, why don't we go hide behind a rock and see what happens, for heaven's sake. Oh, no. They totally despair. And when the women come from the tomb, they say, you're crazy. You know, in the record, there is one person who actually believes that Jesus is going to die. He said it again and again. The angels, not just to his disciples, when the women came to the tomb, the angels said to the women, he's going to Galilee, he's raised just like he told you he would. So it wasn't just the disciples. But there was one person. You know who that was? Remember who that was? Whenever her name is mentioned, you'll remember her. That was Mary who anointed him against the day of his burial. But otherwise, nobody got it. Now, let me draw it all together. In the transfiguration, I'm just going to put a bow on that. The point is that that was... It's interesting. Let me just tell you this. As they leave the Mount of Transfiguration, there are two sequels. One is that the disciples say to him, all right, but we got a question. We don't know what to tell the scribes when they insist that you can't be Messiah because Elijah hasn't come. And, of course, you have the John the Baptist discussion, right? It's just fascinating to me that that question happens right there. And what I hear them saying is, all right, Jesus, we're back on board. God in heaven has graciously condescended to make our faith to be sight for a few minutes. We've seen you in your kingdom glory We don't know what to do with this dying thing. We're back on board. But as long as we're clearing things up, we got one other issue. What about the the Elijah thing? That's what's going on. And then when they get down the back, down the hill, they meet the other nine. And the other nine are trying to drive a demon out of a boy. And they can't do it. And when they say to Jesus, why could we not drive out the demon? He said, because of your little faith. What does that mean? They had actually lost confidence in Jesus' claims to be Messiah. Now that's how staggering Jesus' message was. Three years almost into a three and a half year ministry for the first time, I'm going to die. 
and they're absolutely horrified. And after that week, I think Jesus seeing how desperately staggering they are, he takes them and is transfigured before them just to reinforce their faith. Now, it's a hugely important series of events. By the way, at this point, as best we can tell, a few weeks, maybe days later, he goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in September, October, so we're six months from his death. And and, and uh, follow those months. But what we're talking about, folks, is Jesus as a learner. And even, I think it is, so I'm not give you some points there on your sheet, but I'll just summarize it this way. I think the narrative is quite clear that Jesus had to be resourceful. He had to be persevering. Uh, can you imagine? I won't say it that way. How, how possibly could the disciples have handled the event of the crucifixion and so on if he hadn't warned them again and again and again? He knew how desperately, bottomlessly, unspeakably important it was that he teach them this, and he knew that they were going to be so staggered, so knocked off of their pins, it was going to take work to get them back on board. And so because he is a master pedagogue, he spends the time, and because he's a learner, he learns from Syrophoenice, he learns from Decapolis, he comes up with a plan, and uh, uh, he finally does, in fact, get his disciples to where he can teach them that he's going to die. Does that make sense to you? All right, it's kind of a slice right out of the middle of Jesus' life, but it's hugely, hugely his, his ministry. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, our Father in heaven, we do rejoice over the we, we, we rejoice over this record, this narrative, this fourfold, careful, inerrant narrative that was breathed out for our benefit, and we desperately want to trace this narrative and understand the life that you that your son lived on this earth. So we thank you for it and ask that you would, I thank you for the, the attention and the zeal of these folk. And I'd pray again that uh, because of the time we have together, we would be the better equipped to press ourselves into the mold of our Savior, to, uh, to, to, to walk in the steps of this one who has gone before us. Thank you for what we have in him. And thank you for the gift that you have given us in him, in his name. Amen.